interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Private Equity Podcast. Joining us today is Michael Tang, an experienced private equity-backed Chief Financial Officer. Welcome, and thank you very much for sharing your insights today, Michael. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate the time. So as is customary, Michael, if you could give us a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Sure. Nope. Sounds good. So I've spent my 20 plus career in the healthcare arena, obviously working for different healthcare verticals and, you know, being really fortunate enough to work for PE backed Fortune 500 probably traded and even, you know, nonprofit integrated health systems throughout the United States having working in about 20, 24 states so far. So really, really having the experience how to um, navigate different states, reimbursement structure, rate models, and really being able to give back to the community. So what one mistake do you see either private equity firms or portfolio companies making? And what actions would you suggest to correct them? Yeah, I think the most important thing is not having an even balance between um, financial feasibility um, client satisfaction, um, employee engagement, and quality clinical services. I think some PE backed or some um, portfolio companies really focus more on the the margin so much that they, you know, really uh, you have the quality services really be downgraded to a certain degree. And really, you know, when that happens, you, you get a bad reputation in the community. And, you know, referral sources don't want to refer clients to you. So I think really having that even balance there is equally important. And I think one of the things that PE companies can do is really make sure that they focus on that balance and that, you know, counting paper clips and really driving margin um, is really a short-term impact. You need to focus on all four to really have the long-term impact to really get that, um, to really increase enterprise value when they want to sell in three or five years, typically. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, Mike, with your background, heavily, obviously, healthcare services based, but also you've done a considerable amount of time in the kind of fast growing and ever problematic as well, behavioral healthcare uh, arena, especially in the US. What are some of the trends that you're seeing being in that world uh, happening at the moment? Yeah, I think the top two or three, one being a lot of consolidation now. I think, you know, behavioral health was typically the redheaded stepchild in healthcare. People didn't really didn't want to focus on it. But now you see a lot of different things on the news. Obviously, a lot of it being negative, whether it be a school shooting or overdoses, and people want to focus more on it now. So, you know, that one being the main concern that, you know, it deserves spotlight, obviously, within that healthcare arena. And, you know, people do need help and people shouldn't be ashamed if they want to reach out for help, whether they're going through depression or PTSD or some kind of substance abuse issue. And I think um, number two, you know, and it's a big problem, is really staffing, recruitment, and retention. I think specifically in the healthcare industry, it's a big issue right now, but um, in behavioral health, just because, you know, we're not the highest reimbursed healthcare vertical. So we're really competing with Target, Walmart, construction, manufacturing places to really find people that really want to work and have a passion for this field. And finding a passion is really hard because we don't want to just get a body um, just to fill a role just because, you know, um, staffing, 
And, you know, salaries are 60 to 70% of our overhead already. So really finding the right person is really integral for our industry, especially in behavioral health. Interesting. And behavioral health has had, we've done a fair few searches in the space, has had a bit of a negative connotation. You mentioned obviously within, you know, the, the ginger hair of the ginger head of the healthcare services space, but how is that kind of changing? Because there was a lot of conversation with regards to the actual results that were, there were it was kind of a in out the door, back in the door, three months later, not really solving challenges and solving problems. And you know, we've definitely seen an improvement from feedback that we've we've speak from candidates, from from private equity firms, from portfolio companies. What's your take on the kind of ever facing changes that the industry needed to see in order to to solidify itself better? Yeah, I think the main one is going away from that true fee for service model. And really getting to a value-based performance model or a fully capitated model. Obviously, every state is different. Some states are more behind on it. Some states are more ahead on it. But really, you know, the managed care companies and the payers really f- making us focus on that instead of churning and burning clients. I think the focus on quality services and what KPI should we use, whether it be 30-day readmissions in the hospitals, but it always comes back to how do you guys in behavior have low to total cost of care? Because in ERs, you know, 30 to 40% of people in ERs go there because of behavior health concerns. So if you can figure out how to really force providers to focus on quality services, then you can lower that and then essentially lower how much, you know, pairs are spending every year on um, things that they really don't have to spend on. Interesting. Interesting. And across your career as well, while working for these healthcare services, you mentioned a lot of consolidation, which is something you've been a, a major part of, Michael, during your career. Just before we go into kind of suggestions that you would suggest with regards to, to actual acquisitions and integration, just give us a bit of a flavor of some of the work that you've done with regards to M&A and, and the acquisitions that you've completed, please. Yeah, sure. You know, we have been, you know, the, all the organizations I've been part of, very strategic. So we're not, you know, just trying to acquire just to grow bigger and generate more revenue, more EBITDA. We want to make sure that it integrates well with the services we're providing now. And even location-wise, we want to make sure maybe it might not be a current geographic location that we serve now, but it's strategic that we're expanding in a new state and really taking a look at, is there a lot of competitors? Is there not a lot of competitors? Does it fit into our core client demographic base? Because you know we can serve children, adolescent, adult, geriatric clients and what do we really want to focus on we don't want to make sure sh- we'll make sure that we're not throwing all our eggs in so many baskets where you know we're not um an expert in one specific area however we want to make sure we have enough baskets that we can ride the wave especially when covid happened um i think we're that i know of one of the only behavioral health companies that continue hitting financial metrics that pivoted to telehealth instead of face-to-face and really, we weren't that negatively impacted financially by that. And it's something that I'm proud of for this organization. Interesting. Yes. So if we look at some of the, a lot of the private equity firms I speak to, a lot of the requirements they put on on their CFOs is M&A integration, M&A and integration experience. What's some of the advice that you would give from your experience of doing so many, Michael, that you would share with either portfolio CEOs, CFOs, and obviously the private equity firms on some of the things that, oh, this happened, and I would suggest that this might be a good idea for the future. What what are some of the takeaways that you've had across your career and learning points? 
Yeah, I think a couple of top two or three things. One really being, and it might sound like very um, easy and it very blunt, like, okay, make sure you're doing the due diligence before you even decide to spend a couple million dollars or whatever your dollar amount is that you have allocated to spend on acquisitions. And that might sound easy, but making sure you dive into the income statement balance sheet, making sure that you're doing testing on accounts receivables, making sure that you're really taking a deep dive into that and um, don't always go for the big, you know, home run in terms of the largest or, uh, acquisition. You know, doing five, six, seven small and pops are pretty much, you know, equal to doing one large one. And sometimes it's better. Sometimes you get um, a quicker ROI on that because when you're buying small mom and pops, you know, you can buy it at a lower multiple. And also, you know, their reputation and their quality of standard are higher on average compared to the big ones, because you have these um, people who started the organizations from the ground up. So they're putting their livelihood, their reputation online when they sell to a PE firm. And um, you know, they're not really experienced that much on, you know, what kind of multiples should they sell for? Obviously they, you know, hire an investment bank to help them with that. However, you know, we've seen, we get a quicker ROI on smaller mom and pops than we do on these huger or even medium sized acquisitions. In terms of your, your second part of the question, integration, I think that's very, very important to have a, a standardized action plan post and pre-acquisition. So we have it standardized where every department has their normal checklist, what to do, what to look for, how long is it going to take to integrate and making sure that you know we tailor that to every acquisition because everyone's not the same, but you know, having that standard template is you know pretty good because it helps us really. Um, align our focus, making sure that we don't go off course, making sure we don't miss anything when we do the integration and we do it very systemically. So we don't want a mass exodus, right? You know, change is something that everyone does not like and it's human nature. So making sure that we take our time when we integrate is very important because people are our most important resource. And if, you know, X amount of percentage of people leave, you know, the asset's not going to be worth anything. So having that standardization is very important, especially during integration purposes. Sense makes sense. Sorry to interrupt here. Just a quick note to highlight our new sponsor, Grata. The private equity market is rapidly shifting to a data-driven, proprietary deal sourcing standard. Grata provides the window into over seven million middle market private companies. Contact Grata so you can access the market first. Request a demo www.grata.com. Com. Now back to the podcast. And if we have a good due diligence process, which you would believe that private equity firms would, because that's their job to acquire, but it doesn't always, uh, it doesn't always happen uh, as well and mistakes get made. And we have a good integration process. Is there anything else that you suggest maybe with the, some of the nuance areas, some of the softer skills requirements that that are paramount to a successful M&A integration or M&A acquisition post-integration uh, work? Is there anything else that maybe can't be standardized in documentation or you think, you know what, it's well worth doing this in the initial five days and getting together and doing all these kind of bits and pieces, which may be the standardized process. But is there anything there that's a bit more nuancey that isn't as simple as as creating a form and, and following the process? Yeah, I think people skills and developing that relationship before everything's finalized. I think that's something you, you can't really measure, but you know, that should be number one on anyone's list because people are always scared whenever you acquire them, Hey, 
Am I going to have a job? Um, what's the new company going to look like? Obviously, you're buying us because you want a ROI. What are the expectations? So, you know, always we do a you know a town hall after or right on that acquisition date specifically, and making sure that we answer everyone's questions and quell everyone's concerns that everyone still has a job. But we don't want to lie as well because you know PE firms we're doing it for an ROI. Obviously, there's going to be economies of scale, usually on the shared services side, never on the direct clinical care side. So we don't want to lie as either. So we want to really be very careful of our wording whenever we do that, when we're answering questions that um, you know we can't say every single person will have a job, but really making sure that we're answering their questions as honestly as possible so that they know that we're transparent. We're not trying to hide anything. We don't have a hidden agenda. So that's the most important thing to really start off on the right foot whenever you um, acquire a new company. And there's a lot of complexity when it comes to uh, M&A due diligence and processes and then post-integration. Last question on this, Michael. What's some of the things that you've seen that have gone wrong um, with regards to either M&A or, or, a, uh, or the integration process? And what would you kind of highlight that was worth checking? And I'm sure it comes down to either nuance or obviously a process at due diligence phase or it's a post-acquisition integration. But what's some of the things that you've seen go wrong and, and what would you suggest now to, to correct those or or have, have done retrospectively? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Alex. I think one of them being you can never ask too many questions or do t- too deep of a dive. And me to clarify that is just because you asked for a very broad question doesn't really make people tell you the truth all the time. So mm-hmm. whenever you ask for a backup or ask for a testing or anything, no no one should feel bad at that point because all you're trying to do is making sure that you validate the answer that you get is right. And for you to ask for any kind of testing or backup for you know a sample of you know X percentage every month for the past 24 months. You know, you're not calling anyone a liar. You're just making sure that you're covering your own ass, that you're making sure you're not missing anything. So we had scenarios where, you know, in the beginning, we didn't do that deep of a dive and we trusted people on their word when they answered a question. And, you know, it cost us a good material amount of money at the end because we have to go to lawsuits and make, like, oh, you didn't say us. Well, you didn't ask us this. So there's a back and forth and mediation. So you can never do too, too deep of a dive uh, whenever you're spending a couple million dollars or, you know, on any acquisition. In terms of the integration, I think really trust in people, your department heads to lead that and not to micromanage because, you know, you're only one person. The CFO can't do everything. So you got to make sure that you trust your team, you trust the skill sets, all their strengths and making sure that you're not micromanaging them because, you know, you want them to grow. You want them to go through this learning process with you um, so that they can you know move on in their career as well. So that being a main point, you know, really to trust the people that you've hired in the company. Sense. Thank you for sharing all of that. What three attributes do you believe make a top performer, Michael? Yeah, I yeah, I think joining any organization, especially PE ones, it's the same three for me. Number one being integrity. I think that when whenever you say something, you have to follow through with it. Whether you, you know you promise or you say you're gonna deliver a report by a certain time, you try your best to deliver that. And even when you know, other examples, you know, say someone said tells you something you can't repeat to anyone else or they're a confidant in you, really make sure you don't break that trust. So that's, you know, my integrity is top one. Number two is really communication, right? Is really listening and not hearing and making sure that, um, 
you know, you're not the smartest person in the room and you should never claim that title. You want to make sure you're, you're surrounding yourself with really talented people who can support you in this process. And then the third one being ego. I think people are really sometimes too concentrated on titles or, you know, or the money aspect, but you know, you want to make sure that you're not too good to do something, you know, especially me, whenever I do due diligence or if I need to do an ad hoc report, I can actually perform those by myself. And I do do those to this day because I don't want to be reliant on an analyst or someone else to do that for me, or if I feel I'm too good or um, um, to do something myself. And I think, you know, those are the three things for me anyway, that makes a good leader that will make you successful in any organization, whether it be feedback or not. But that those are the three characteristics for me, Alex. Perfect. I like all of them. It's difficult to disagree with any of them. So, <laughs> and what do you, from working in a P-backed environment, what do you love about the private equity industry and equally what do you dislike? Yeah, I think the top thing I like is the speed and pace. I think everyone, all P firms want, they keep saying, I want it tomorrow. Or I want to sell it immediately. But I think everyone has realistic expectations. That's why everyone says, oh, three to five years or if you can do it sooner. Yeah. But it's not as slow as, let's say, a nonprofit where decision making is always, oh, we got to get these people's feedback, these people's feedback. We got to make sure that we're making the right decisions. So I think speed and pace are something that I like personally because I, I'm not bored. I want to make it keeps me on my toes so that, you know, I'm always prioritizing, making sure that, you know, what comes next needs to be prioritized first. I think something I don't like, you know, some PE firms, like I said before, Alex, you know, they, they don't have that balance between those four pillars that I discussed before. And I think they focus on margin so much that, you know, they're always, you know, well, quick enough to say, oh, let's hire a consultant. All right, what can we do to get more blood from the rock? What other costs can we cut? Uh, what kind of admin do we don't need anymore? And I think not focusing on that too much, so much that really it dilutes everything else. I think that's some P firms, you know, should learn from that. That's something I don't like because you can get, you know, there's a need there. As long as you have people to perform the service, you'll get the volumes, you'll get the referrals, but focusing too much on, all right, how can we get more EBITDA? I think that's one of the things I don't like for some PE firms to really prioritize on. Okay. Yeah, growth and value creation, et cetera, is uh, uh, certainly more and more spoken about now and has been over the last five, 10 years uh, with private equity rather than I think what you're talking about there is that kind of financial engineering type process. Um, rather than bringing actual uh, actual value. What are your influences? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen? And what would you recommend that others uh, check out, Michael? Yeah, I think one of the things that I read is really, um, for me, industry articles or industry changes, whether it be reimbursements, staff, anything that has an impact on, you know, on the healthcare industry, just because I've been, you know, that's my main focus. And I don't think that will change for me. In terms of just personal reading, you know, to be honest, Alex, you know, I just finished my MBA last year in 2021 and just relocating for jobs and everything. So I haven't really had a time to do pleasure reading, especially with two kids at home. However, I think reading anything that has any kind of updates on the industry that you're working in is always important because you want to keep up to date. You want to know what changes are coming down the pike to pre-plan for that. In terms of, you know, just trying to relax and everything, I think even for you, just watching any kind of movies, whether it be action, comedy, or anything to really have that R and R time because you know I think sometimes we focus so much on work that you know you just have to relax as well. You have to recharge the batteries. You can't be on the clock twenty four seven. So anything for me, you know, any kind of genre, I'm open to as long as it's um, you know relaxing and it you know brings a smile to my face. 
And then, you know, just spending time with family. I think that balance out there, you know, it's always good to focus on work, but making sure that you're balancing your priorities and making sure that, you know, all your family and friends are have equal amount of time with you as well. You know, that's going to really make it sure that you you do excellent at your current job, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Probably something I can definitely listen to. Too much work and uh, too little play makes, uh, well, I can't remember who it is, but somebody a dull boy or whatever the, uh, the saying goes from there. Yeah, and interesting, you know, especially with healthcare services, with, with a lot of it being, you know, heavily government regulated and changes and implementation from there, obviously an important element to keep in touch. But if anything, you know, every industry has uh, its regulators and, uh, and processes that, that companies have to follow from a compliance perspective. So, Michael, if anybody wants to reach out to you post this podcast, how best do they get in touch, please? Yeah, they can always, you know, email me in my personal email, mtangfw at yahoo.com. And, you know, for any reason, or reach out to me on my LinkedIn profile, message me there. Um, always help to, always, you know, willing to help out anyone in the healthcare industry if they have any questions, concerns, or um, anything they might have, any kind of special request. So always willing to give back in the, in the community anyway. Perfect. We'll put all that in the, in the show notes. So, Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate your insight into both healthcare, particularly behavioral health, M&A, and also all the other bits that you've left us with uh, information-wise. So thank you very much. Left lots of value to P professionals and portfolio executives alike. Yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate the time and, help, uh, and uh, getting me on the podcast. And as always, thank you very much for those listening. And of course, should you ever need support with your private equity professional hiring or portfolio executive hiring, please do reach out to me at Raw Selection. If you haven't done so, please do subscribe and you'll be notified of the next podcast, which comes out every two weeks. But till the next time, keep smashing it. And thank you very much for watching. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.